Today I want to talk about the power of a life well lived. For us to really appreciate Christmas, I think that it is important that we address some of the foundational, um, as it were, reasons behind this particular holiday season. America is in a huge struggle to, and you, you listen to me closely because I don't say things like this off the cuff or lightly. America is in a huge struggle to retain its Christian identity. Amen. Huge. Did you hear about the school uh, that edited out and the song Silent Night, any reference to Christ? And the district superintendent and the principal and uh, the music teacher were trying to explain, we just don't want to offend anybody. We're 87% Christians in this nation. And I spend a lot of my time in parts of the world that are at least 50% Muslim and some that are more than that. And other places around the world celebrate their holidays. And, um, you know, they figure if anybody has a problem with it, they, you own that problem. They don't. They're going to celebrate their holiday. America has forgotten that the meaning of tolerance is not that you have to no longer have any personal beliefs yourself. You have your own beliefs and you respect those of others. Some reason or other, some people seem to be incapable of doing that. If they have a set of beliefs, they feel compelled to attack you about yours. But it seems to me that if I understand Scripture correctly, that we're supposed to love other people and value them even if they don't see eye to eye. And that's true even in the church. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace until we come to the unity of the faith. Which means even in the church we can believe a number of different things that we might not all agree on, but we're supposed to stay together within the, as it were, the constraints of love that hold us together in harmony until eventually we come to understand a pure with a pure understanding exactly the teachings that Christ left us. To me, that says several things. One is that, as I said, that we can't put our personal priorities and beliefs at a level above others. We have to respect others. And number two, we might just end up finding we were wrong somewhere along the way until we come to a unity of the faith. And the only way two people that disagree are going to come to a unity of the faith is one of them's going to have to be wrong, and maybe both of them were before it's all said and done. But I do believe in the basic tenets of the gospel being absolute. Now, by that I mean the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no debate in my mind about that. But some of the other little issues about, you know, you know like some people still argue about, should we worship on a Saturday or Sunday? And that's why I made that reference actually a while ago. And you know, they, that to them, that defines who they are. And they believe it. And you know what I tell people? Worship whichever day you want. Just worship. Personally, I'm going to worship every day. Seriously, I'm going to worship Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And if I can get to church in any of those, or all those days, I'm going to do that. And one of the reasons I became compelled to believe that is many years ago, I traveled in the Fijian Islands. And one of the islands, the international date line runs right through the middle of it. And so you stand right here and it's Saturday and you stand two feet over here and it's Sunday. Kind of hard to debate. 
you know, about things like that when you have that kind of situation that, that, that you're in. I mean, it's, you suddenly realize it's pretty ridiculous. So, okay, I've got I to gotta worship here, but, but over here I, I'm going to the market, or over here I'm going to the restaurant, and now then it's a different day. It just, people get hung up on stuff that don't matter. But I, and all of that then begins to undermine the credibility of what does matter. Because people want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know what I'm talking about. Don't like a few things and then begin to question everything. And if there's any particular message that I believe that Christianity must hold on to if we're going to retain our identity and our faith, it's the story that we know as the Christmas story. And equal in importance to that is the story of the resurrection. So I read today Matthew 1, verse 21 through 23. And he will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the, only, as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, speak to us now, I pray, a word that will cement, concretize in our minds the importance of the Christian message, what this season is all about, and therefore make it meaningful to each of us, that we can enter into this holiday season that we will experience on Wednesday and hopefully carry with us until next year at this time, that we may enter into it with a proper attitude of worship and reverence and all. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Here we are at Christmas. It's coming up to Christmas, and little Sammy asked his mom if he could have a, a new bike. And uh, she told him that the Best idea would be to write to Santa Claus, right? But little uh, Sammy, having just played a vital role in the school nativity play, said he would prefer to write to the baby Jesus. And he went to his room and he wrote, Dear Jesus, I have been a very good boy this year and would like to have a bike for Christmas. But he wasn't happy when he read the note because he knew he had been anything but a good little boy. So he read it over a couple of times wadded it up and threw it away, decided to write again. And this time he wrote, Dear Jesus, I'm a good boy most of the time, and I would like a bike for Christmas. And he read that over, and he decided that wasn't exactly the truth either. And uh, so he wadded that up and threw it away. And then he wrote, Dear Jesus, I could be a good boy if I tried hard, and especially if I had a new bike for Christmas. And he read that one too, but he still wasn't satisfied. So frustrated, he went for a walk to think about a better approach. And as he was walking down the street near his home, he passed a house with a small statue of the Virgin Mary and the garden and the flower bed in front of the house. And he was suddenly, his mind was suddenly flooded with brilliant insight. He crept over while nobody was watching, grabbed the statue, put it under his coat, hurried home, hid it under the bed, then he wrote a new letter. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, you'd better send me a new bike. 
Amen. Is Christmas really all about gifts and things of that nature? At Christmas, we actually, we actually celebrate the incarnation of Christ. And this is why, to me, this season is so important. Uh, we will have a Christmas Eve and a Christmas Day service. I'm not asking you to attend both. I am asking you very directly, as your pastor, I want you to find one of those two to attend. We need to worship God as I've often said, in the liturgical world, meaning those that follow liturgies like the Catholic Church and others, the Christmas holiday is the most highly attended service in the course of their entire calendar year, even more well attended than Easter. The reason for that is they teach the importance of the birth of Christ, perhaps in a way that, that we have allowed ourselves to become a little bit slack in. The word incarnate, the incarnation of Christ. The word incarnate actually is from the Latin word incaro, which means in flesh. God came in flesh. Now, I want, first of all, you to think about that. God came to earth in flesh or in a human body. The absolute mystery of just that alone is enough for you to spend the rest of your life trying to ponder answers to. And like most things that are too awe-inspiring and miraculous to describe or understand after we've seen them, isn't it amazing how we just, you know, look at that and it's awe-inspiring and wonderful and just really don't fully understand it, but we acknowledge it and then we move on as though nothing really happened. And it's kind of like, give you a few examples, like say a nuclear fission or uh, creation or the aurora borealis. And have you ever seen the aurora borealis? I've seen it on many occasions. You ever, you ever see that? It, these are just some of the most incredible things that can happen in the physical earth in which we live. We see it, acknowledge it, move on like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's cool. People in faith often do that with this, this entire understanding of the fact that Christ came to the earth in caro, in flesh. We acknowledge it without realizing just how big an issue this is. It's like describing a, a sunrise to a blind man and expecting him to understand what it looks like. You cannot with words capture the length, the breadth, the width, the depth, the mystery of such a concept. Indeed, the things that I've just used, aurora borealis, creation, nuclear fission, sunrise to a blind man, they pale into insignificance when compared with the meaning of incarnation. Incarnation is 10 million times more important than any of the things that I've just described, but we say it so easily and move on. And I'm struck today not only by the fact that it did occur, but I'm struck by the fact that God had compelling reasons to make it happen and would feel that it was necessary for incarnation to be a part of his plan to redeem us. Surely as God, being who he is, you would think that he could have conceived some other way to try and save us. Um, recently, I was watching some debates. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is author of the book, The God Delusion, and there's another gentleman 
who has not debated him, but I was watching their respective debates with other people. This man is a Christian creationist. He's a scientist, very brilliant man, and a grand chess master, one of the very top. And what he does is he'll play a whole room full of people chess. I'm talking about themselves, highly advanced people, and he will remember every move. Now, this is the deal. He puts a blindfold on and goes from table to table remembering in his mind the picture of the chessboard. That's more going on upstairs than I got going on upstairs for me. I'm just going to tell you. Amen. And minds like that struggle to understand the mystery of incarnation. But if a guy can, can, can walk into a room blindfolded and carry on multiple chess, chess mass, match, mass, matches and remember from one table to the next what the move was and still win and beat everybody. Well, that, that's humanity, you know, and human intellect at a pretty advanced capability and capacity. How about God? Couldn't God have figured out some other way to, as it were, resolve this question of redemption without having to come to earth. Why did he choose this path that he would need to enter into his own world? And while this question of the incarnation and the reasons behind it are usually approached from the perspective of, I'll, I'll use a big word and then I'll define it, soteriology, soteriology rather, which is the, 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 the doctrine of salvation, while they say that that he came to earth because that's what required, was required to pay our debt of sin. And our sin, the debt was so great, the price so great, that it required the penalty of pure blood, such as the blood of the Savior, and all of that's true. I, I want to look at incarnation from another perspective just for a few moments. I want you to think of the power of his life because everybody always approaches why Jesus came from the perspective of his death. He came here and his death was, was what he really came to achieve. And the more I look at scripture through the years, the more I am compelled to believe that he didn't just come to die, but while he was here, he came to do some stuff. He came to demonstrate some things. I want you to think of the power of a life that's well-lived and the impact that a life that is well-lived has upon people who observe it. So let me belabor the point for just a moment. Let your mind wrap around this thought, though I confess it is too marvelous and wonderful for me to be able to comprehend it. You can try. God came to live among man. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God among us. Just say that, Emmanuel, God with us. God, God living in our neighborhood. Lord have mercy. Amen. He became that which he had never been, yet never ceased to be that which he always was. The creator became the created. The lion became the lamb. The king became the servant. Mary's God became Mary's baby and never ceased to be Mary's God. Just all of that is just a little bit too much for me to fully comprehend. And this is what John said, that we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, a glory that was full of grace and truth.
not just in his death or his resurrection, but John said while he was living, we beheld in his life a glory that was full of grace and truth. What does that mean? It means that not only was his death and his resurrection powerful, but so was his life. Just tell somebody his life was powerful. Would you do that? Amen. It's, in fact, if you want a definition of the gospel, I hear people say it's a death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, it's more than that. It's the life, the death, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if it wasn't for the life, the last three wouldn't have counted. Come on, help me out now. If he had lived any old kind of life, then the last three would have not been any different than anybody else's death, burial. And if there could have been such a thing, a resurrection for someone else. The fact that he lived his life well is, I think, extremely important in understanding the Christian story. In fact, it's the way he lived his life, as I said, that makes the other three components of the gospel as efficacious as they are when applied to our lives. Christian need to understand this. Christmas reminds us there is power in a life well lived. No matter who came before him, no matter who has followed him on the face of this planet, nobody quite lived the kind of life that he lived. Now that encourages me from this perspective. Oh, Lord, I wish people could hear what I'm, I'm saying. Because there's nobody perfect that I know about. Amen. And one thing that being a pastor helps you to understand is that everybody struggles somewhere along the way, including you. Amen. Including the pastor. I mean, you can start out idealistic and bright-eyed and all full of passion about how perfect you're going to be. And at the end of the day, you walk home with your shoulders slumped and slip into the house and hope nobody noticed. But you were less than what you had hoped to be. Because we live in a fallen world and we are made of material that is less than perfect. And the only thing good and noble about us and inside of us is God. Can somebody just say amen? And on our best day, we're not good. All of our, our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. It encourages me that God looked down and said, I need to send somebody to show them the power of a life well lived. Because there were a lot of folk that lived good lives up until that time, but it just wasn't good enough. There have been a lot of people that have lived lives since then that have been good, but again, just not good enough. Your life, too, though, does become powerful in its own way when you live out the teachings of the Bible. And I want to show you this. Psychologists tell us that one of the things that creates troubled children is when children are taught that they should believe in values they do not see lived out around them. That is to say that if you tell a child, you've got to be honest, but you're not. And you can't lie, but you tell that child that, tell the truth, but you, tell, you, you prevaricate. You, you say things that aren't true. You teach a child ideals that it doesn't see lived out around that child, that it creates a dissonance in that child's psychological well-being that causes that child to grow up very troubled. And they begin to act out later on, and they begin to question everything they were taught. They say these ideals become to people who don't see them lived out. Listen to this. This is from an actual study, unintelligible words that are without meaning. That's literally what they say. All of the values that we want to pass on to our kids, if we don't live them out, become unintelligible words. 
without meaning. As humans, they say we need to see our ideals lived out and personified to inspire us to seek them and embrace them in our own lives. This, in turn, keeps them from being mere abstractions. I don't want to lose you by getting too heavy here, but let me just say it like this, that when God came, he came to be God with us. He didn't just come to Mount Sinai to tell us what to do. He came to Bethlehem's stable to show us how to do it. Amen. This is why his, his life is important. Amen. They also go on to point out that as proof of the importance of living out certain ideals, that it's not the ideals themselves that make an era and time great. It's when somebody so grasped that ideal that they become the personification of it that an era becomes challenged. And great men and great women who embrace and embody certain virtues and values in turn inspire others. And it's those key men and women in a particular era that make a generation or a time great, like Abraham Lincoln and Florence Nightingale, like a John Kennedy or a Martin Luther King Jr. or a Mahatma Gandhi or a Mother Teresa or, as we all are aware, a Nelson Mandela who just passed away. These are people who made their respective times in history their little sojourn upon the stage, their walk from that side to this side, they made the rest of the world stop and take note. And though they were just as human as everybody else, they embodied characteristics that many who preceded and followed did not embody. And in so doing, stopped the rest of us dead in our tracks and made us think this world could be a better place if we live like that too. This is how powerful your life is when you live it by the principles of the Word of God. Oh, somebody in the building say amen. I'm going to go to a passage right now that you're going to find a little unusual to hear the Sunday before Christmas. But 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 2, wives. Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the Word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied with fear. Understand the word fear there does not mean horror or terror. It means reverence. When they see your reverence for God, Paul, Peter is writing and saying to wives whose husbands are not believers, you don't have to just preach to them, just live the life. You don't have to open your mouth and condemn and tell everybody around you they're going to hell. Just live the life. And without the word, there's something about the power of a life well lived that impacts those around it to such a degree that Peter's confident forecast was that if you'll just live the life, your husband will get saved without ever hearing a sermon. Amen. And this is one reason I disagree with some of the tactics that I've seen employed by churches that go to like veterans, uh, people killed in, in our services overseas, uh, military service overseas. Have you seen some of that stuff some of these little churches are doing? And picket and, and protest all kind of stuff and everything. That's not the place to do that. You're not going to win friends and influence people doing it that way. You hear what I'm saying? Live the life before somebody. Have some convictions. Don't just say it from here. Live it with both hands and both feet. 
You live the life, and, and Peter said you can win an unconverted man or husband to God. Now, let me back up because I'm talking about the power of a wife, life well lived. Let me tell you that the reason that this is in your Bible, the reason that Peter phrases it this way is because it's kind of like the, the fellow said about men, I understand them because I owe one. Peter is a man and he knows that men are a tough sale. He knows they're tough to impress or convince. Every man in this room will tell you that we are taught that to fulfill our roles in life as men and someday head a family, that we must be careful and a little bit cynical in living life. We can't with wide-eyed wonder accept everything that comes down the pike. We have to ask some questions. We take a little time to convince. The reason that we have to be careful is when we make a decision, somebody behind us is going to follow us. We've got a wife and some children that are going to be taking those same steps that we have taken. And therefore, men must, be learn, must learn to be careful in making choices, for their decisions do not just affect themselves. They affect, as I said, a wife. They affect sons and daughters. They affect friends. They affect finances, business ventures, and even affect destinies. And so when I make a choice, I've got to look back and realize I'm leaving some shoe prints somewhere that somebody's going to step in a few days from now. Members of my family that look up to me. And Peter is telling the wife, you need to understand this about men, that even though we're a hard sale and have to be, yet without the word, there is such an impact created by a, a, a life well lived that without hearing a sermon preached, without going to church and being in a worship service, you just live the life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Might not happen the first week or the second or even the first year or two or three, but somewhere along the way, the old boy that lives in that home is going to begin to make a comparison with the one that he's living with and what he sees outside. And a question is going to begin to grow in his heart. Why is she so different? Amen. And why is it that, I, that I've got such an angel? And I don't mean that in the sense of you heard the guy say, man, he said, I went and done got married. And, and, said, and he's telling his friend, he said, his friend said, well, how's it going? He said, man, I'm, I'm married to an angel. He said, huh, you sure are lucky. Mine's still living. Amen. Now, don't, women don't get offended by that. But, you know, we can so live in a way that the person you're living with decides they're married to an angel. Something about your life can impact somebody. Amen. We think it's all got to be said verbally and we all got to talk about it. Not necessarily so. And so one of the powerful aspects of Christianity and one reason the, the incarnation is so vital in understanding the Christmas story and one reason we can never let that go is because Jesus didn't just come with dying on his mind. He came with living on his mind too. He wanted to show you you can live in a way that touches other people. You can live in a way that moves other people. This text tells us that the best testimony isn't the one you hear, but it's the one you see. Mm. 
That's what Peter's really saying. And in Acts 4 and 13 and other places throughout the Bible, we see it. Oh, I could quote many of them from the life of Jesus, but now let's look at some of those that were his disciples. Acts 4 and 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. There was something about them being with Jesus that marked their life. That even though they did not have college degrees and much of an education, and though they were not considered to be the creme de la creme in society, just common, hard, rough hewn fishermen, their time with Christ so impacted them that their lives in turn began to make, as it were, a distinction between their own life and the lives of others they once went with and once were friends of and, and, and once lived among and, and their life so shined and in such a way that people began to realize they've been with Jesus, man. What, what we saw in him, that glory that we saw of the only begotten of the Father, a life that is full of grace and truth, we see it in their life too. And that, that impressed people. And so Acts 6 and 7 said, the, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased great, rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why? Because somebody preached such a brilliant sermon? No. And this is the problem with performance-based and performance-oriented religion. We want a Billy Graham to come along and preach a great sermon that's going to move the masses when what we really need is a Billy Graham to just live his life. Amen. Somebody to be a Billy Graham in their neighborhood. Somebody to be a Billy Graham in their school. Somebody to be a Billy Graham on the job. Somebody to be a Billy Graham. Oh, come on. Hear what I'm saying right now. What God's looking for is people who can live a life well. And through the power of their life, without ever saying a word, provoke questions in somebody else's mind that make them want what you have. I think of some of the amazing stories that we hear about of a believer whose life was lived out in such a way that just his life alone was enough to impact those who were around him that did not know God. Saul of Tarsus was an example of someone who was impacted with the power of a life that was well lived. Saul of Tarsus was the young man representing the Sanhedrin that they laid the garments at the feet of when they stoned Stephen the martyr in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen reacted in a way that was altogether different than anybody else who had ever been stoned reacted. Stephen lifted up his face and saw the heavens open and the glory of God. His, his life and the way in which he died was so incredible that Saul of Tarsus could not get away from it. People think that God just showed up one day in the middle of the road to Damascus and knocked Saul of Tarsus off his donkey. Uh-uh. There was some heart searching going on after watching Stephen die. There was something happening in the midnight hours, and there were mornings in the middle of, 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 of an early morning and when the sun had not yet come up, three and four and five o'clock, when, when, when Saul of Tarsus was up pacing his floor and couldn't get away from the look that he saw on Stephen's face as he was dying. He had never seen anybody live or die quite like that. 
And what I'm trying to tell you is he was impacted by the power of a life that was well lived to such a degree that one day God showed up in the middle of the road to Damascus and, and, and knocked him off his horse. And when he fell to the ground, he was blind and said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm the Jesus that you've been persecuting. That's all he had to say. That's all he had to say. Because it had been eaten on him, at him uh, on the inside of him ever since he had watched Stephen die. And you know what sets people up for God encounters? You know what sets your neighbors up for God encounters? Do you know what sets your coworker up for a God encounter? Do you know what sets your children up for a God encounter? Your husband, your wife, it's the power of a life well lived. Just live it, that's all you gotta do. You don't always have to preach it and sometimes we think we, that's what's required of us. Just tell them and, and the life part of it is that we, we, don't even, we don't even worry about whether we measure up to that aspect of it or not. We're going to just tell them the way it's supposed to be. Bless God, you're going to go to hell if you don't get saved. And all of this, uh-uh. Peter said, if you have a husband that doesn't know God, let me tell you how to win him. Don't badger him, don't cajole him, don't beat him over the head with the gospel. Let him see the power of a life well lived. And this is my point, that men are such a hard sell that if you can win a husband, the rest of the world's going to be easy. This is what's implied. Amen. How did this impact the life of Paul? I'll tell you how it impacted his life. It moved him so profoundly that later Paul was apprehended for his faith just as Stephen had been. And Paul remembered Stephen. Remembered his response before the Sanhedrin and in court and modeled to a large degree his response before legal authorities after what he had seen. So it's to such a degree that when he was condemned to die and he was put in prison, do you know that some historians say they had to change his guard every three days? Because if they left one of those pagan, unconverted Roman soldiers with him three days or longer... When they came back to change the guard, Paul said, see you, brother. And the soldier would turn around and see you, brother Paul. Praise God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. He converted his, he converted his guards if they left them with him longer than three days. There are even some reports. I, don't, I can't attest to their authenticity, but I like to believe they were probably true. That it got to the point that they had to change his guards every eight hours because if a shift went on longer than eight hours by the time the replacement came to tag team and replace the one that had been on duty Paul had already gotten the man saved and led him to God now that's the power of a life well lived and if I could wish one thing for us, it's that we could realize that when Jesus came, it wasn't just about God coming to die. He also came to live. The God on Sinai that told us what to do dared step down into our world to show us how to do it. That's what Christmas is all about. He left his own and came to our world stepped down, condescended in Cairo, in flesh, incarnate, became one of us to show us the power of living out the teachings of Christ. Nelson Mandela just passed away, as I said, in one of the most moving testimonies 
offered the week of his funeral came from one of his former jailers. And as I've said, I had the privilege of meeting him in Dora Esalam, Tanzania. Stayed at the same hotel I stayed at. It was a Sheraton. I just landed in, in Dora Esalam. He came to stay at the hotel. Amazing because got on the same elevator, walked through the same lobby as us. Security guards didn't push us away. Greeted us warmly. And, um, and uh, Dr. J, who was with me, rode up in the elevator with him to uh, his, his room was on the same floor our, ours was on. And um, I, I thought about that afterward. He was so approachable that it actually, you know, amazed me because I've seen people go to such lengths with security. It's just unbelievable. I see pastors that, that whenever they come into church, they've got a phalanx of bodyguards around them. And, and I'm wondering what you've been doing all week that you, you know. <laughs> you got folk wanting to hurt you that bad. And. Amen. I teach our staff, walk slowly through the crowd. Amen. We're here to serve. And uh, Christo, Christo Brand gave his testimony this week. He was a white man that started to work on Robben Island in 17, or 1978, the most feared prison in apartheid-era South Africa. He began to work on, in that prison when he was 18, and Nelson Mandela was 60. And he became Nelson Mandela's warden. Mandela spent 18 of his 27 years in prison on Robben Island. And when Madiba was later transferred to Poulsmore Prison and then to Victor Verster Prison because of their friendship, they actually transferred Crystal Brand with him each time. While at Robben Island, Brand grew to be so impressed by the calmness, the patience, and the lack of revenge and hatred in Mandela's heart that he risked his own job to smuggle in special treats like bread and Mandela's favorite hair pomade. And, and Brand even sneaked in Madiba's granddaughter that had just been born, infant granddaughter, so that he could hold her. And um, years later, when Mandela was present and his years in, in prison were over, uh, he took special care to single out Crystal Brand and give him recognition. And by that time, uh, Bram wasn't working in the prison system. He was now a lowly civil servant passing out papers in meetings of government officials. Nelson Mandela walked into the conference room in Pretoria, Illinois, after being elected president, where all of the leading dignitaries of the South African government were waiting, went around, introduced himself to every person, and saw the man shuffling papers and placing them on the table where the people at this meeting were going to be. And he stopped in amazement and made an announcement. He lifted up his arms and greeted Crystal Brand, and in front of all of these men said, you know who this person is? This person was my warden. This person was my friend. Now, Brand said he felt very humble and proud at that moment. And when, when Mandela went to take uh, photos with the parliamentarians at the end of that session and stood there for a group photo, Brand, the lowly civil servant, was standing over on the side. Madiba said, no, 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 you come. You stand right by me. You're my friend. Amen. And Crystal Brand reluctantly, while others with their eyebrows raised, watched all of this came and stood by Nelson Mandela. And this is what Brand had to say when Mandela was buried. He was my prisoner, but he was my friend. He was my president, and he was my father. Something about Mandela's life moved Crystal Brand.
And I want to conclude today by asking us this question. What is it about our lives that impacts others and how do we impact them? This is the amazing meaning behind the Christmas story that we often don't hear talked about. It wasn't that he just came to die. Strike that notion from your mind once and for all. It's he also came to live. He came to show us that the ideals of the Bible are within our grasp. The teachings, the principles, the ideologies are within our reach if we will but try through his grace and his help. And more than any words we can say, more than any petitions we can sign, more than any testimony we can give, more than any sermon we can preach, more than any song we can sing, I want to tell you what moves people. It's the power of a life that's well lived. He, Christ, lived out the teachings and ideas of the Bible, ideals of the Bible. So I'm done. I'm closing with this, and I ask you to reflect on this this Christmas season. It's one thing to enter into Christmas and say, well, thank you that you came to this earth to give your life for me. I'm grateful. I appreciate that. that that's wonderful. Never forget that because that's an important part of it. We could not have paid the penalty for our own crimes and sins. He did it for us. But also, remember, it's an altogether different thing to say thank you for coming to show me it could be done. So life application points, how do we apply this? First of all, remember what this season is about. Don't let anybody edit the name of Jesus or Christ out of silent night. Don't let them turn this into just another tradition where people spend money in an attempt to bolster the economy and cynical people promote Christmas that don't even believe in God for one reason alone, and that's the kajing of the cash register. Uh, don't you ever get caught up in that. We Christians are 87% of this nation. We're the majority. Let us hold the line. Some of us need to stop following everything that's out there and start leading a few folk. Amen. Can somebody say a, amen? So remember what this season is about. It's not about, and thank God for the wreaths and the lights and the poinsettias and the trees. And, but that's not what it's about. It's about someone who lived a life well. Amen. It's about God becoming flesh, God becoming Emmanuel. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Number two. Spend this Christmas in worship and thanksgiving. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to realize that we needed him, not just as a blood donor at the blood bank before the judgment seat of Christ in heaven so that we could have his blood to redeem us. No, we needed him before that. We needed him to show us how we could measure up to what grace called us to aspire to. Amen. So spend this Christmas in worship and in thanksgiving, not just in the giving of gifts or the opening of gifts, or not just in eating Christmas turkey and ham. 
Y'all like fried turkeys? Y'all remember this when you take a bite of fried turkey, Pastor said it's not all about eating this Christmas. Spend this season in worship. And this is why I say either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, one of those two. Come join us and let's worship the Lord together. Number three, remember that you're the only Jesus that someone else may ever see. And remember that what started with him was to be multiplied in us. Amen. Say, I'm going to give somebody a Bible for Christmas. Maybe even a better thought would be to let them see a Bible. A living Bible. Don't you love that translation? It's called the living Bible. I've always liked that because that's what we're supposed to be, living Bible. Amen. Epistles known and read of all men is what Peter said. And so, fourthly, just be aware you don't have to cram the gospel down your relative's throat this Christmas season. When relatives and friends come over that don't know God and ask you, what's, what's, this, what's going on in your life? Why you go to church every Sunday? Why you give your tithe? You know, you ought to go to the Texans on Sunday. You know, why don't you just say there's something about his life that changed me? And just leave it at that. You don't have to preach to him, get mad, and, you know, get into wars over theology. His life wants to be lived out in you.